Long time ago, in a land far away, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, uh, we occasionally had a chapel called Hour of Praise, which, which was devoted to uh, students spontaneously standing up and giving some word of praise to God for, for some way in which God had been significantly at work in, in their life recently. Almost every time that we had an hour of praise, I think, some student stood up and said something like, I, I am so grateful for the possibility of living by faith. I'm a student here at the seminary. My wife and I are here in Dallas while I'm studying at the seminary. And, and, and frankly, we, we really don't have a tangible source of income but we're living by faith as God's people. And just the other day, I, I went to my mailbox here, and, and I found a check for $500 that I wasn't expecting. In that era, at Dallas Seminary, $500 would pay a semester's tuition. That was a long time ago in a land far away. Every time that happened, I, I, I had this terrible ambivalence. Part of me wanted to say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Except we wouldn't raise our hands at Dallas Seminary. And um, that was one side of me, but there was another part of me that said, what, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not living by faith? Yes, I, my wife and I are here in Dallas, and I'm a student at the seminary, and our needs are being provided, my tuition's paid, and uh, we have enough food to eat, and I can, I can buy the books that I have to buy, but that's because my wife's a nurse, working in the hospital, and um, I'm, I'm working part-time in the seminary book room, and a, after a couple of years, I was grading Greek papers for one professor. Well, maybe, maybe we should just live by faith. Because I, I had brothers, fellow students, who were living by faith in the sense that that they were not generating wealth, but they were living on wealth redistributed from others of God's people. Some relatives, some who weren't relatives. But then at, at some point I realized, un unless some of us who are God's people generate wealth, there's no wealth to redistribute. So we couldn't very well all live by faith in exactly that way. And so I, I concluded, those brothers of mine who were living by faith in that way perhaps had what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of faith. And it, as Paul's talking about the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit, one of them he talks about is the gift of faith. And, and obviously it's not, it's not the faith that all believers have, 
because he's clearly saying these are special manifestations of the Spirit given to some, not all. They had a special gift of faith. God was showing himself in their experience in that way. But that's not the way he shows himself in everybody's experience. So I felt a kind of relief. Maybe it was okay that my wife and I were generating income, and that was a way of taking care of our needs. But I realized all God's people are called to live by faith in some sense. And that led me to thinking about that classic chapter about faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And, and there, what, what, we, what we see is faith actually is, in a sense, very much future-oriented. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Probably do not yet see is the point of that. And then the writer says, this is what the ancients were committed for. And then he gives examples, all of which are obviously designed to say to us, just as the people of God before Christ lived by faith, so must we. And so the way he describes it in the chapter, especially right in that first verse, would, would seem to say something like this. To live by faith means I, I trust God, which means I believe God's promises. And therefore, I trust his commands and I obey him in the present. As I confidently believe that he will keep all his promises to me. It's, it's a trust and obey. The... The character in Hebrews 11 who gets the largest share of the print is, no surprise, Abraham. Often called the father of the faithful, father of those who believe. Those who are part of the new covenant people are called the seed of Abraham because we share his faith. And so, for a long time, I've, I've been thinking about what the writer of the Hebrews says about Abraham there as a pattern, as a paradigm of what it means to live by faith. In that chapter, uh, from verse 8 down through verse 19, at, at four different times, the writer says, by faith, Abraham did something. And so, I, so we have four aspects of what it means to live by faith as seen in the pattern of Abraham, our father in faith. And so I, I want to look at the first two today and the second two by faith statements next Sunday. So today we look at verses 8 to 10 and then verses uh, 13 to 16. So I start reading in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And then down to verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, a God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The first by faith statements, verse 8. And the point there is, faith includes a willingness to obey God in the present, even though the results of all that are uncertain to us. We don't know all that lies beyond the next step of obedience to the will of God. The writer says, Abraham, when God called him to go to a place that he would ultimately inherit, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham was like the typical male driver. Just drove, even though he wasn't sure where he was or where he was going, we're told. Now, all of this takes us back to Genesis 12 and God's call to him. We're thinking about verse, or chapter 12 of, of Genesis. Actually, at the end of chapter 11, we, we have this interesting uh, first step where we read at verse 31, Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So it appears that Terah, Abraham's father, was, was committed to leaving the idolatry of what, what later would be called Babylon behind. And they set out. He set out for Canaan. He knew something about it. But he only got as far as Haran, and he didn't go farther. So we're not sure what happened in the experience of Abram's father. Why he didn't go farther. What we do know is about Abram. So in chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, you go, you leave, you leave your family, your country behind, and, and you go to, a, go to a land I will show you. Now, it's interesting. Notice it, it's not phrased, go to Canaan. That's where he ended up. But it's not the way the command is phrased. The command is phrased, go to a land I will show you. You need to leave here, and I will take you to where I want you to be. And then he makes this, this fabulous promise that he will make him a great nation. He'll make his name great. And in fact, that, that Abram will be the channel of God's blessing for all nations. God's work zeroes in here on Abram and then ultimately on Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. But that's not because... God is unconcerned about other nations. 
But he's, he's zeroing in on Abram and his offspring in order to make them the channel of his blessing for all nations. And so all the peoples on earth, he says, will be, will be uh, blessed if they bless you. In other words, if they share your faith in the true and living God. So Abram went, we're told. Lot went with him. He was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Took, took Sarai, Lot, all, all the things they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they left. And ultimately they came to the land of Canaan. And when Abram got there, traveled around uh, some of the land, the Lord appeared to him in verse 7 and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there we have the first promise about the ultimate inheritance of that land for Abram's offspring. Abram then worshipped the Lord, the true and living God. Then he went on and, and he pitched his tent around Bethel. And again, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the true and living God. Now, we aren't told in Genesis 12 exactly how God led Abraham from Haran to Canaan. Even at the beginning of it all, he only says, I'm, going to, I'm calling you to go to a land that I will show you. And it is ultimately Canaan, even as his father had set out for a long time back. We aren't told exactly how he got him there. What the writer uh, to the Hebrews tells us is, we know how he did not do it. The writer says, Abraham went, he obeyed and he went, even though he didn't understand all the details about where he was going. In other words, God did not give him a map in advance and say, okay, you left, you left here, you came here, now you're going to go exactly here. This is the exact route you will take. Uh, this is the number of people who will die on the way. This is the number of camels you will lose or gain. The writer says he didn't know all the details. In other words, God didn't give Abraham a map. He gave him a GPS. His task was to obey the Lord as the Lord made the trek clear. To take the next step of obedience in terms of understanding the will of God. It's like a GPS. You don't have the whole map on screen at one time. What you have is that voice telling you what to do, including recalculating along the way. I take a perverse pleasure in making the thing recalculate, actually. <laughs> I figure, no, I don't like that particular route. I'm going to go another way and, and drive her crazy as she recalculates. But the writer says it's like, more like a GPS than a map. In other words, living by faith means as, as you and I face the future, we, we can take the next step 
of serving God, doing the will of God, insofar as we know it, without having to know all the implications beyond that, all that will come as a result of it, all that may lie beyond that choice. Think of what that would mean for us in many spheres of life. When, when you choose to get married, when you choose to marry someone, do you know all that lies beyond that choice? If, if, you haven't, if you haven't lived together before marriage, you don't even know whether the other person squeezes the toothpaste tube at the end or the middle. There's a lot that we don't know. I'm, I'm tempted to ask, if you knew before you got married all that would lie beyond that, how many of you would have got married? But I won't ask for a show of hands. But living by faith means if I understand that in, in God's providential ordering of things, he's brought me to this place, and getting married to this person is the right thing to do, then I do it. I can, I can accept the uncertainty of the future insofar as I know it. You, or you may be making educational plans or help, helping a son or daughter make educational plans. And, and, and it seems a particular choice is the right one, but, but you don't really know all that lies beyond that choice. You don't know exactly what those courses may be like. You don't know exactly what the job prospects may be. You don't know exactly where it all may lead. Living by faith means I can take the next step as God seems to make that clear, however he chooses to make it clear. And I can, I can live with the uncertainty of what lies beyond that. Do you know that, that the right uh, first step toward becoming a theologian is to um, do a, a university degree in mathematics? I bear witness. That's, that's, that's obviously the right way to do it because that's what I did. I was open to vocational ministry when I finished high school, but just didn't seem like that was the right next step. And so I went off to Purdue University, that school that's produced three Super Bowl winning quarterbacks, but I digress. I did that degree in mathematics. I didn't know that while doing that degree in mathematics, I'd be involved in a small church near the campus. I'd be involved with a pastor who would take special interest in me, who would involve me in some ministry with him, and who would say to me, ultimately, is it really math that you want to teach? Because by that time, I saw myself becoming a math professor. And, and I had to say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. And so... I didn't know what lay beyond that choice to do that degree in math. But God did, and God was arranging things to ultimately bring me into pastoral ministry and ultimately to teaching in a seminary. In the near future, this church will be calling a new pastor. 
And, and frankly, I've, I've told, uh, told Rick, I think, and some others, I think a pastoral search committee is just about the most challenging task in the world. Because you have to think through what's the nature of this church and our needs at this time, what's the nature of the community around us that we're trying to reach, what, what kind of uh, focus of gifts and a pastor do we think we need for going forward? And then how do we find that guy? It's a very challenging task. But at some point, hopefully soon, you'll, you'll be appointing someone to that role. And, and I'm sure, you know, there will be questions like, well, what will this mean down the road? And exactly what shape will his ministry take here? And you can't know all those things in advance. Probably there will be some surprises. And probably he will have some surprises too. I, I still remember a couple of years after we immigrated to Toronto, and I became the pastor at Runnymede Church in Toronto, I, I had taken uh, Carissa and Tim, our two older kids, to the uh, dentist, I think, and I was driving home, and from the back seat, my son Tim, who was then probably six or seven, said, Dad, why did we have to move to Toronto? I said, we had to move to Toronto uh, so I could serve as the pastor at Runnymede Church. Well, why did you have to do that? Well, because I, 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 was, I was quite sure God wanted me to do that. And he said, did you ever think you heard him wrong? And I had to admit, a couple of times, there have been some surprises. So, living by faith means I don't have to know all that lies ahead. I understand what certainly appears to be the right next step of obedience, I do it. By the way, it's very interesting to see that back in Genesis 12, after Abraham obeys, and he goes, and he keeps on going, and he gets to the land that God took him to, there is a famine in the land. Really? Lord, I've obeyed you. I've made this long trek. We're here. I've built an altar, and I worship you. And now there's a famine, and we don't have any food. So they end up making a trek down to Egypt for a while. Really? That's a reminder that we need to be very modest in our attempt to interpret God's providence and say, okay, I know exactly what he is saying by these events. And we certainly need to recognize that if we obey the Lord and take that next step, that doesn't mean that immediately everything will just neatly fall into place. It's not that simple. But we can trust God and take that step of obedience, trust Him to deal with the consequences. The second thing the writer 
says. The second point he makes is in verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham lived in the land that God promised to give to him and his offspring. He lived there along with Isaac and Jacob, also heirs of the covenant promise, his son and grandson. But they lived in the foreign, in the promised land, in tents. They didn't own the land. The, the only thing Abraham ultimately owned in the land was a burial plot for him and his wife. But he lived there, worshipped the Lord, served the Lord, but lived like a stranger in a foreign country, even though he had the promise. Back in Genesis, in the text we read earlier in chapter 13, Lot and Abraham have to go separate ways because they've both become wealthy and, and, the, and the land can't handle both of them. So Abraham defers to his nephew and allows him to choose. And then Abraham gets another spot. And, and, and in verse 14, after Lot had, had, had separated from Abraham, the Lord speaks to him, and says, look around in every direction, north, south, east, west. As far as you can see in every direction, I will give that land to you, you personally, and to your offspring forever. In fact, your offspring are going to be uncountably great, like the dust of the earth. Later, in, in chapter 15... When, when God renews that promise about the land, he says, to your descendants, I give this land from, from the wadi of Egypt, a tiny little river at the edge of Egypt, to the great river of the Euphrates. Uh, th that's, that's basically like saying the whole known world. And, and Israel never possessed land all the way to the Euphrates. But notice the, the promises to, he says to Abraham, to you personally, individually, and to your offspring, I would give that the whole thing forever. I don't have time to develop it here, but I, I, I think we see when we look at the Bible as a whole, that the ultimate fulfillment of that is, is in the new heaven and new earth. When the whole seed of Abraham, not only believing Jews, but believing Gentiles as well, will inherit the whole thing. But it didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime. He lived in the land like a stranger. And in verses 13 to 16, the writer emphasizes... They were still living by faith when they died, and they, they hadn't, at that point, actually got the land. Now, I think one of the things God was beginning to put in Abraham's head was the whole idea of resurrection. And in fact, next week, 
We'll see a bit of an intimation of that in later verses. In other words, Abraham will personally inherit all of that forever as a resurrected Abraham, along with the resurrected offspring of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile. But the writer is making the point. God has promised us his eternal kingdom, but we may not inherit, we won't inherit all that right now. And even short of that, you, God may give you a clear sense of, of what he wants to do in your life or in this church, but it may not happen immediately. Living by faith means I can wait patiently for God to fulfill his purposes in his own time. Many of you have heard the name William Carey. Carey is often called the, the father of the modern missions movement. He convinced his fellow Baptists in England in the late 18th century that they should take the gospel consciously, directly to the world, and so Ultimately, the Baptist Missionary Society was founded, and in eight, what, uh, 1793, I think it was, the BMS sent Carey to India as a missionary. Carey's the one who had said, this we have to do. Now, if I'd been writing the script, I would have vindicated Carey for that courageous choice by drawing people to faith immediately upon his arrival in India and developing a church immediately. But I didn't write the script. God did. And Carey labored for several years before he had one convert. But he labored faithfully, and he was a gifted linguist, and so he was translating the Bible into the Bengali language so that when, when God began to raise up a church, they would have much of the scriptures in their own tongue. And God did ultimately bring all that about, but it didn't happen immediately. I learned the lesson myself Back, back in my first pastoral ministry, back in Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington is a um, city that's the home of Indiana University. And, and so when I, when I went to that church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, I, I, had, I had this heart for, vision for, a ministry to students, faculty and staff, the university. I, now... Our church building was some distance away from the campus, so that, that limited the numbers uh, a bit. But we had people from the university, but I really wanted it to grow and develop. But not long after I arrived in Bloomington, I discovered that, that there was an evangelical Presbyterian church with a building within a few blocks of the campus and, and they were absolutely exploding in growth. Three morning services, and the, the pews were all filled, and people were sitting on the floor. 
They didn't have capacity restrictions. It wasn't a pandemic. And, and I mean, it was the place to be. And, and I thought, wow, I mean, that, that's amazing. And, and part of me said, Lord, you know, you, you really should do it in a Baptist church, not a Presbyterian church. But again, not only, not only do I not write the time, timelines, I don't write the script either in any sense. Well, it didn't take long before I, I met Dave Ferris, the lead pastor there, and Dave and I became good friends. And, and one day I, I said to him, look, Dave, I know that this explosive growth in the church has only happened in the last three or four years, and, and you've been here about 10 years. What changed? I mean, what changed about you? What changed about the pattern of ministry? And he said, nothing. Nothing changed. I didn't go to some conference that made me a new kind of pastor. I didn't suddenly become the world's greatest preacher. God has just been doing a very powerful thing. And, and that was, for me, a word of both rebuke and encouragement. It's not about having the right tools and therefore you can guarantee the results. It's about serving God faithfully and waiting patiently for God to fulfill his purpose. So the writer makes it clear that Abraham lived by faith, and so must we. Now, maybe for some of you, maybe for someone here today, I don't, many of you I really don't know. Maybe there's someone here today, or certainly maybe someone watching this via the live stream, who's never started the journey at all by faith. Just as Abraham believed God's word of promise, you need to believe God's promise in the gospel, the good news, that Jesus the Messiah has died to atone for our human sins. And God raised him from the dead, exalted him in heaven, and he's coming again to judge the world and to reign forever and ever. And God offers you a part in all that by grace, received by faith. And then along the way, the path of following Christ, we are called to live by faith. But I can imagine what someone here is thinking, and really you want to say it out loud, and that is, look, it was easier for Abraham I mean, God spoke to him directly. God, God appeared in very miraculous ways that he hasn't in my experience. It was easier for Abraham. Well, there may be some truth in that. And yet, viewed from another angle, Abraham served God by faith in spite of the fact that he saw very little of the actual fulfillment of God's promises. You and I can look back on the fulfillment of God's promises in that he did bring Abraham's offspring out of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them into the land of Canaan, gave them possession of it. 
God fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah, the servant of the Lord who would die for our sins, to redeem us, to deliver us. God poured out the Spirit on Pentecost, and, and we have seen that, that small band of original believers grow to a universal church. We look back on God keeping his promises in all those ways, and all we wait for is the final curtain at our Lord's return in glory. So, in some ways, it ought to be easier for us. But that's not the point. Because the hero of the biblical narrative is not Abraham, the hero is God. Who is sovereignly, powerfully at work in Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And so Abraham lived by faith, and so can you and I, because we serve the same God. Let's pray. Lord, as we face our future, personally, as families, as a church, we recognize many uncertainties that lie ahead of us. Perhaps at this point in, in history, in our experience over the last year and more, perhaps we understand that better than ever before. So today, renew in us our hope, our trust in your promises, and our trust in your commands that we might believe that you will do what you have promised and we will obey you in the present, trusting you with full confidence for all that lies ahead. Lord, make that our experience, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.